I'm reminded of a story of a pilot flying an airplane. It was a particularly long and, and bumpy and turbulent flight. All throughout the flight, the pilot wrestled with maintaining uh, the stability of this plane for the comfort of the passengers, and the pilot was simply tired. The flight ended with a very rough landing where the plane bounced a few times before it came to a stop. The pilot was dreading what would come next. You see, it was this particular airline's policy that the pilot must stand by the door of the airplane and to thank the people as they exited this plane for flying with their airline. And you've seen that before, uh, as the pilot would stand by the exit door and thank people for flying with their airline. The pilot was dreading this because of the turbulence throughout the flight and the landing, which was not great. But he stood there humbly by that door. Surprisingly enough, the people filed off and no one said a word. Then came the last passenger, an elderly lady walking with a cane as she hobbled to the exit door. She came up to the captain and she asked, Sir, can I ask a question? The captain answered, Sure, ma'am, what is your question? Sarcastically, she asked him, Did we land or were we shot down? People who are humble are often stepped on. Snide remarks are often made of them, no fault of their own. And yet we are called to be people of humility as followers of Jesus Christ. But we live with the tension of trying to understand if humble people really succeed in this life. We live in the tension of knowing we are to be humble. And yet, we have come to the conclusion that humble people never advance in life. They are not successful, and so it is not worth being humble. How are we, as followers of Jesus Christ, to live a humble life? It is a word we know about. We often ask ourselves the question, are we humble? And yet when we think about being humble, then we're no longer humble. It's a bit of a paradox. How do we know we're not really faking humility? Well, we want to look at this subject this morning as we continue our sermon series entitled, No Filter, The Consequences of Authentic Living. We've been looking in this series about how we as Christians are to look at the world to look without the filters of the sunny-filled days and the flower-strewn pathways. We're looking at life for what it really is, and it is a life that is bleak at times, this real world. It is a hopeless world. It is a dark world. How are we to live as lights in this world? How are we to live humbly? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 41. As we continue our study in the life of Joseph, we've been expositing verses 1 to 57. Genesis chapter 41. If you're new to the Bible, that is the first book in the Bible. And I encourage you to bring your Bibles every week. So you don't simply stare at me. There's nothing to look up here at. 
Genesis chapter 41. If you don't have your Bible, share with a friend. The last time we left Joseph, he is in prison. He is in prison because he is wrongly accused of a crime he did not commit. He lived a faithful life. And yet because of the consequences of his convictions, he is in jail. If you remember from two weeks ago, he helps Pharaoh's chief butler and baker. He shows kindness to them when he does not need to. And he helps interpret the dream of the butler. And in that dream, the butler was told he would be restored to his position three days after that dream. And sure enough, that is exactly what happened. So sure of the interpretation that Joseph had a special request to this butler. Remember me. You see, God had given Joseph the special ability to interpret dreams as he revealed the interpretations to Joseph. Remember me was the plea of Joseph. And yet, sadly, the butler remembered him not. He forgot him. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 1 of Genesis 41. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he stood by the river. Two full years had passed. Remember, there is no feedback that the butler has forgotten Joseph. Every morning he would wake up with the anticipation that perhaps today is the day that the butler will present my request, my petition before Pharaoh. And that at the end of the day, his heart would be crestfallen because nothing happened. Day after day, every morning, Joseph, always the positive one, would remember perhaps today is the day. Months went by. A full year went by. Another year. You could not blame Joseph if he begins to lose hope. The butler, on the other hand, he's moved on with life. He's not worrying about Joseph. But now we're told in verse 1 of chapter 41 of Genesis that Pharaoh has a dream. In verse 2 to 4, we find out his dream. It is an interesting dream. It is a dream of seven fattened cows that come out of the river to graze along uh, the riverbanks. It is followed by seven sickening or sickened or ugly cows that come up. And here's the catcher. These seven gaunt, ugly-looking cows eat the seven good-looking cows. I've grown up in a church. I have never seen this illustrated when the story is told. Perhaps a bit too graphic. How in the world does a cow eat another cow? I'm sure it was a frightening dream. As I think about it, it would be frightening to me. Bible tells us Pharaoh wakes up at this nightmare. Well, Pharaoh thinks it's a nightmare, and so he goes back to sleep. And that very night, he has another dream, verses 5 to 7. We're told that similar to the cow dream, he now dreams of seven growing, 
heads of plump, good grain. Soon after, it was followed by the raising of seven thin heads of grain. And these seven heads of grain ate the seven plump heads of grain. And Pharaoh wakes up disturbed. Those must have been scary-looking heads of grain. Did they have mouths? I have no idea. I'll ask Joseph when I get to heaven. How in the world does a grain eat another grain? But so disturbing was this dream that Pharaoh wakes up and he's troubled. He can't go back to sleep. The next morning, we're told in verses 8 to 14, that Pharaoh calls all the magicians and the wise men in all of Egypt, but none can interpret these disturbing dreams. Finally, the chief butler remembers, oh, oh, Joseph. And he tells Pharaoh that there was a man in prison who has interpreted his dream and it came true. Perhaps he could also help Pharaoh. Finally, the butler remembers. And so Pharaoh summons Joseph into his presence. Now I want to stop here and just imagine for a bit what must be going through the mind of Joseph. Two years lost a bit of hope. The Bible tells us he receives the news. He will appear before Pharaoh and they clean him up. Joseph is excited. He must be. This will be an opportunity of a lifetime. Not everyone has an audience before Pharaoh. This will be my one and only chance, perhaps. This is my ticket out of jail. And then I can be freed from the injustice of why I'm here. And so you cannot fault Joseph if he brags about himself a little bit. Perhaps he tries to impress Pharaoh. You would afford him, as you would afford us in the same situation, a little leeway in bragging rights. Poor guy, so much injustice has been done in his life. Here's his moment. Look at his response, verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you, Joseph, can understand a dream and to interpret it. Pharaoh does not know about the living God, Yahweh, the one true God. He knows only of Joseph, that he has the ability to interpret dreams and it comes true. This was Joseph's chance to impress Pharaoh and get out of jail. Finally, you, Joseph, Pharaoh says, your reputation precedes you. I hear you can interpret and understand dreams. Here is his time to shine. Look at verse 16. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, first words out of his mouth, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. I've got that underlined in my Bible. Look at the response. It is amazing. Pharaoh says, you, Joseph, 
have the power to interpret dreams, Joseph says, in this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to impress the Pharaoh, it's not me. It's God. Now, if I was in Joseph's position, yes, I would have talked about God, but I would have inserted myself. Yes, Pharaoh, God and I, we, we can interpret your dreams. Or, Pharaoh, I can inquire of God for you. Or maybe this, God, through me alone, I consider the word alone, can give you the dream. That's how we do it, right? And here Joseph shoots himself in the foot, literally. It's not me, Pharaoh. It's God. The character of Joseph comes true and clear. He's a genuinely humble man. He redirects focus from himself to God. And therein lies our first principle, number one, if you're taking notes. Humility is redirecting focus from you to God. Reorienting, refocusing the attention to you back to God. You know, people often ask me the question, Pastor, how do I know if I'm really humble, right? You guys ever ask that question? How, how am I really humble? Is there some sort of definition? Is there a way I'm supposed to live out? Do I just keep bowing every time? Does that make me humble? Does simply uh, rejecting compliments, oh, you're so good looking, oh, no, I'm not. Does that equate to humility? But in the, your heart, you're thinking, yeah, I'm pretty good looking. Is humility an action? Is it a word? What is it? And, and you know the, the tension, the paradox. The more I think about humility, the more I think about myself, the less I am humble. And so, this first principle gives us a litmus test. A filter by which we can understand if we're humble or not. Do you direct focus and attention to you or away from you to God? And that's what Joseph does. First words out of his mouth. When the moment for him to shine came, it's not about me. It's about God. In verses 17 to 24, Pharaoh recounts his dream to Joseph. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There it is again, verse 25. Joseph credits God again with the interpretation of his dreams. Egypt will experience seven years of great, fruitful bounty in their harvest, followed by seven years of great famine, severe famine. Verse 28. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There it is again. God will show you Pharaoh. Jump down to verse 32. And the dream was repeated, Joseph says to Pharaoh, twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Notice how many times in this short exhortation, explanation, Joseph mentions God. True humility 
redirects focus from you to God. Kent Crockett writes in his book, Making Today Count for Eternity, a great book, the story of when he first enrolled in seminary to prepare for his pastoral ministry. He says, I made an appointment early on to talk to the dean of men to see if I could get a room in the dormitory. When I walked into his office, the first thing he asked me was, Kent, are you applying for the janitor's job? No, I said. I'm here to see if there's any room available in the dorm. The dean of men said, I'm sorry, the dormitory is full. We'll put you on the waiting list. But if you know anyone who wants a job as a janitor, please send him to see me. Kent told the dean I wasn't interested and thanked him for his time. Then I left his office and walked outside. While outside, I prayed, Lord, please provide me a room. God stopped me on the sidewalk and spoke to my heart, Kent, go take the job. Take the job? I prayed for a room, not a job. But I knew in my heart I needed to obey. Immediately, I did an about-face and walked into the dean's office and said, I'll take the janitor's job. He hired me on the spot. At first, I had to battle my pride. I thought how overqualified I was. I'm a college degree holder. I am now working on my Master's of Divinity to prepare for pastoral ministry. And yet I was given a seminary janitor's shirt and pushed around a card. You've seen it before. Stocked with soap and gloves and toilet paper, toilet bowl cleaner and a brush. Every day I wore that shirt and pushed that cart down the hallway, seeing my fellow classmates and they seeing me. Saw me as I cleaned the toilets and scrubbed the showers and emptied the trash cans. But it wasn't long before I discovered that cleaning those bathrooms in the men's dorm was part of my spiritual education. I learned to do those jobs that no one else wanted. As I cleaned these toilets every day, I made a surprising discovery. God spoke in my heart more clearly than I've ever heard him before. I meditated on scriptures as I worked, and God gave me insights into his word. I then realized that cleaning toilets was part of my training for ministry. You see, if I wasn't willing to serve God as a custodian, how could he trust me with other responsibilities? And parents, that is why it is good for the character building of your children to give them chores. And if it includes cleaning the bathrooms, so be it. And if you don't have a lot of bathroom to clean, send them to church. We will train them for you. And all the young people gasp. Ken continues, I spent my three years in seminary cleaning toilets and attending classes. I'm convinced that half of what I learned in seminary was in the classroom and the other half was in the bathroom. I learned to respect and thank janitors for the work they perform. But more importantly, God used that job to teach me that whatever task he calls me to do in life, 
I'm actually serving Him. And I like that last part. I'm actually serving Him. Perhaps all of us need to work as a janitor, whether figuratively or literally, before we begin to live out the Christian life. To understand that the life that we live, the life that God calls us to live, is not about us. It's about serving Him. That our life is about redirecting and refocusing attention from you to God. And so when you begin to complain about why your life is like this and why life isn't fair and why you got the short end of the deal or why you have to eat leftovers again and why you don't have this or that and why you want other people to pity you and feel for you and you become emotional so that they will feel for you and become emotional as well. Remember, it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. It's one of the hardest things to do. Humility is redirecting focus from you to God. Verse 33. Now therefore let Pharaoh select the discerning and wise men and set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph suggests wisely to Pharaoh that it would be prudent to select an administrator to handle the collecting of the grains to prepare during the seven fruitful years for the seven lean years of severe famine. Here at this moment... Joseph could have angled for a job. And, and by the way, Pharaoh, if you don't have anyone else, I'd be a good candidate. Joseph has proven himself. He's a, a good administrator. He's a great executive, both in the house of Potiphar and in the royal jail of Egypt. He's shown himself to be more capable than the other wise men of Egypt in this instance. And remember here, the implications for Joseph. There is no guarantee that he would be freed. You know what his fallback job is? He goes back to jail. But you see here in verse 33, the second principle of humility. Humility is truly seeing others as being better than you. Acknowledging others as better than you. You see, humility is not only a word. It is an action. It is a thought. It is an attitude. It is the realization that sees others as better than yourself. And that is a great second litmus test to see if you're really humble or not. Do you walk around thinking, I'm better than them. I'm better than them. I'm better than him. I'm better than her. But of course, you would never express that because that makes you look proud. But in your hearts, you know you're better than them then you're not humble. An attitude of humility acknowledges others as being better than you. I remember the story of Brother Maceo. He is in the order of the same one that St. Francis of Assisi was. And Brother Maceo began to say as he approached St. Francis of Assisi, Why you? Why you? Why you? Francis said to Maceo, What are you saying? Why you? Why you? Maceo replied, Francis, I don't get it. I'm saying that everybody follows you. 
Everybody desires to see you. They want to hear you. They want to listen to you. They want to obey you. And yet I look at you, and no offense, brother, you're neither beautiful nor learned, nor from a noble family. Whence cometh that it should be you whom the world desires to follow? You're not anything. Why you? When Francis of Assisi heard these words, his heart was filled with joy and raised his eyes to heaven. After remaining a long time absorbed in contemplation, he knelt praising and blessing God with extraordinary fervor. Then he turned to Brother Maseo. Brother, you wish to know why they follow me? It is because the eyes of the Most High have willed it so. He continually watches the good and the wicked, and as his most holy eyes have not found among sinners any smaller man, nor any more insufficient and sinful, therefore he has chosen me to accomplish the marvelous works which God has undertaken. Maseo, he chose me because he could not find none more worthless. Isn't that great? God chose me because he could find none more worthless. Francis concludes, Maseo, and he wished to confound the nobility and the grandeur, the strength, the beauty, and the learning in, of this world. This thought echoes what Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. If you and I can have the attitude that says, God has chosen me because I am the worthless of the bunch, then you will begin to understand what is the attitude of humility that is true humility. This is the attitude of the great men and women of faith. People like John Newton when he wrote Amazing Grace. Remember, we get to that line, how he saved a what? A wretch like me. The worst of them. It's not simply words that come out of our mouth. It is how we view ourselves. God chose me because he could find none more worthless. Acknowledging others as being better than you. Verse 34 to verse 37. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grains under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. For the first time as I studied this chapter again, I stopped and I thought to myself, why in the world would Joseph give such an advice, an unsolicited advice to help the Egyptians? I put myself into Joseph's position and I thought, 
not knowing the rest of the story, I thought, you know what? Here am I heading back to jail. This is the country whose judicial system put me into jail, wrongly accused without even giving me a chance for a defense. This is the country whose people has enslaved me for 13 years. If I was in your position, Joseph, let Egypt burn. But instead, here he gives suggestions for Egypt for how they are to succeed and and at this point in their history will then become one of the richest nations in the ancient world. Because as you see the heart of Joseph. And here's the third principle. Humility allows others to succeed. And you've got to ask yourself, do I set up others for the win? Do I set up others so they gain the advantage? And here's the funny part about life. Here we're all driven for success and we realize or think that humility doesn't grant us that success. And so we play these games of manipulation to try to come out on top. And you know the funny part is? Success is not even ours to give. Proverbs 2 verse 7. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. Success is God's to give. And so you know what? It will cost you nothing to set up others for the win. To allow others to succeed. To give them the advantage. I'm reminded of a humorous humorous story of a pastor who was resigning from his church to go and lead another church. As he was resigning from his church, there was an elderly, uh, older member of the congregation approached the pastor. She was crying over the pastor's decision to leave their church. And she said to him, Pastor, things will never be the same. The pastor tried to console her by saying, don't worry. I'm confident you will get a new pastor who is better than me. But she continued to cry and she replied to the pastor, That's what the last three pastors have said, but they just keep getting worse. Success is not in our hands. It never has been. It never will be. So it costs you nothing to allow others to succeed. And that is the third litmus test to see if you are humble or not. Verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servant, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Here it is. Here's a cliffhanger of a question. Where do we find a man like this who can administer? You just want to say, Joseph, raise your hand. I would do the same thing. Pick me, pick me. If Joseph really thought himself great, 
he would have pushed for this newly created position. We all jockey for position, right? Because the consequences is that he gets sent back to jail. But notice that Joseph says nothing. He remains humble as he truly is. And he allows God to determine his own purpose and will and course of action for his life. And let me give you the fourth principle first and then I'll elaborate on it. The fourth litmus test for humility, or the fourth quality is humility is trusting God to allow him to honor you. Did you get that? Humility is trusting God to allow him to honor you. Verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garment of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And Pharaoh had Joseph ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So Pharaoh said, Joseph, over all the land of Egypt. From a slave to a prime minister. In a manner of moments. And to signify his newfound authority, Pharaoh took off his own signet ring and gave it to Joseph. He's now the second most powerful man in Egypt. Verse 44. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name, Zaphnath Paneah, and he gave him as his wife Asenath, the daughter of Patib Perah, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt, and note this, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Thirteen years, Joseph had to wait for God to honor him. When he was taken as a slave, the age of 17, he wondered, when will God reward me for my faithfulness, for my humility? Thirteen years. We can't even trust God for a month of waiting, much less a year. We want our instant success and honor now. And that's why we can't deal with humility. Because we need to sell ourselves to the world. Every time we step back, someone's going to step up. When a position opens up, boy, we better angle ourselves and we better position ourselves so that we can have what we believe is rightfully mine. Why mess with humility if it only pushes us back? 
And it's because of that attitude that we do not trust God to allow Him in His own perfect time to honor us. But 13 years he waited. Did he lose out? No. He went from slave to prime minister of Egypt in one minute. Think about that. We play the game all the time. Because that's what corporate tells us to play the game. How to play the game. When God's hand of blessing comes upon someone, 13 years of waiting can be made up in one minute. Did you get that? True humility comes out when you can trust God to allow Him in His time to honor you. And my friends, honor will come. Success will come. It is promised by our Lord Jesus Christ when he says, The first shall be last and the last shall be first, whether in this life or in the life to come. It will be yours. All of us will receive the honor that is not due us but by his grace. When we, when we are glorified, it will be worth it. It's hard to do, I know. To wait, to trust to wait on God's perfect timing to honor you. But then that is the litmus test for true humility. I began this sermon with the question, do humble people become successful in life? Well, since success, since humility is an attitude Success must also be viewed through the lenses of an attitude. And we get a glimpse of that into Joseph's attitude in verses 47 to 57. In 47 to 57, we find out that Pharaoh's dream really do happen. They come true. And Joseph, as the wise administrator and prime minister of Egypt, uses those seven years of fruitfulness to store enough grain and food for Egypt and the surrounding region. And then the famine comes and spreads throughout the region. There is no food. People from other countries come to Egypt to buy grain. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week about this. Pharaoh had instructed that they first look to Joseph. He is in charge. But as you read in this section, you find out that in these years of abundance, Joseph becomes a father. He becomes the father of two boys. And I direct you to verse 51 and 52. You can look at the mindset of Joseph by how he names his two boys. Look at verse 51. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. Why? For God has made me forget all my toils and all my father's house. Isn't that great? I name my first son Manasseh because in my current standing, I have forgotten all of my toils and all of the injustice of what my brothers did to me. That's true honor. That's true success. When you can stand at the pinnacle of your life and look back and say, you know what? 
I have no regrets. I've forgotten all the hardships. I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes in my life, and this is just me being honest, uh, early in life, after all that hard work, you know, you get a certificate. And then you look at that piece of paper and you said, all that work and I got a piece of paper. Right? That's how we are sometimes. All that work I did. And I get a little name printed in the bulletin under acknowledgement. And it's the same font size as everyone else. For all the work I've done, at least my name should be a bigger font size or a different color. Right? Well, we kind of think like that sometimes. All that work. A little certificate. And then they forget. But you know, that's what we're trying to achieve for in this world. That one minute of fame, of glory, and then it comes and goes, and we wonder, was that worth it? What happened? Not for Joseph. Joseph, in that time and in that place, he says, God has made me forget all of my toils and all of my father's house. Those 13 years of slavery, I've forgotten. That, that's complete honor. It's not only worth it, he doesn't even remember the hardship at all. That is success. Humble people do really find success in life. Because unless you have a humility of spirit, you will never get to that point in your life where you just stop and you look back and you say, you know what? I'm all right. I'm so satisfied in life. God has been so good to me that I don't even remember the hardships of my life. Only a humble person can think like that. The second son, verse 52. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim. Why? For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Love this. A great name. Ephraim. Joseph says, I am so blessed. In this land of affliction, in this unjust, unfair life, I can stand today and I can say, I am blessed. I am fruitful. I am a blessing. I'm content. We all know in reality life is not fair. That was the first sermon in this series. But in this life that is very much unfair, I can stand in the middle of it and I can say, I am blessed. That is success. That is honor. In spite of the difficulties of life and what life throws at me, in spite of the injustice, instead of me not getting my fair share, I can stand and I can declare to the world, I am blessed. That is the success in life for one who is humble. It's been said there is no limit to what a man or woman can do or where he or she can go if he doesn't care who gets the credit. Humility does bring success. But do you have the trust do you have the faith to believe that God will bring it into your life? 
And that's the question. Have you died to yourself so that you can begin to live for Him? I end with this short statement from George Mueller, that pastor of a generation gone by. A man asked George Mueller the secret of his Christian service, his faithful Christian service. George Mueller responded, There was a day when I died, utterly died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, taste, and will. Died to the world. Died to its approval and censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then I have showed myself approved only to God. My friends, as we come to a time of communion, we are reminded that Jesus Christ died for us, and we know that. He laid down His life on our behalf. He died so that we might gain life eternal. The Lord Jesus, God Himself, who knew all the glories of heaven, humbled Himself to become one of us so that He could die and be nailed to the cross for your sins and my sins, of which He did not deserve, but we did. And so He gives us that grace and He gives us those benefits and those gains. And then He asks us, will you follow me in discipleship? And it requires that we die to ourselves. And there are some of us who made a decision years back at a camp or at a conference. We made a decision at a church or at a chapel that we would die to ourselves. We would not care about our own opinion and our own preference. And we would die to the world and its approval and what it thinks about us and what others think about us. But we've long forgotten that because we've been sucked back in to thinking what's important is what I think. Perhaps today is the day you and I need to make a recommitment to die to ourselves so that we can begin to live for Jesus. Unless you and I die to ourselves, we cannot live fully for Him. The life that He calls us to live, a life of humility. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is convicting even to me. One whose natural tendency is to fight for the win. One who does not wait because he fears that he will be left behind. One who wants to be recognized and yet forgets that it is in your perfect timing and whose true honor is the most important. I pray, Lord, we would all learn the lesson of humility, that in the reality of this world, we live not caring what the world thinks, but dying to ourselves 
because you first died for us and gave us the gain of eternal and abundant life that we may have the privilege of living for you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.